Thank you for listening to Emmanuel Baptist Church's podcast. For more information about the church, please visit our website at www.emmanuelmanning.com. Thanks and enjoy the sermon. Chapter 2 of Mark, as we continue our series in Mark, we're looking at verses 13 through 17. Mark 13 through 17. Jesus has been doing some ministry in what has become his hometown, Capernaum, which is where Peter lived. For a while, Jesus' home base of ministry was uh, Capernaum, and he's there, uh, and he's by the sea again. Capernaum was in the northeastern part of Israel, up in the area of Galilee, Um, and he started his ministry there. So follow along as I read verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. There's kind of a famous-ish in churchy circles story that went around about a memo uh, from a pastoral search committee. So whenever a church doesn't have a pastor, it forms a search committee, Baptist church, and they go looking for uh, pastors and they get a bunch of resumes and some they reject and some they look and try to go a little bit further through the process. There's a a memo from a pastoral search committee uh, noting the, the candidates the committee rejected because of serious inadequacies. There was a man named Noah who tried to be the pastor, but he was rejected because he had no converts in 120 years. There was a man named Moses who tried, but he couldn't get through. He had public speaking problems, and occasionally he lost his temper. There was a man named Abraham who often ran off during hard times and occasionally lied to get out of trouble. There was a dude named David, but he had had an affair. A man named Hosea, whose family life was in shambles. Uh, Jeremiah, uh, he was too emotional and kind of an alarmist and could be a whiner. (laughs) Thank goodness y'all don't reject those kind of people. Um, Amos, he was an unsophisticated country bumpkin. Can't have those. Peter, he had a bad temper and occasionally denied Christ. Paul, this guy named Paul, he lacked tact. He was harsh. His appearance was contemptible. He had a unibrow. We can't have that in the pulpit. Um, He was bow-legged as well. And sometimes he preached so long that people fell asleep and died. Uh, There's even this guy named Jesus, but he challenges those in authority. We don't mess with him. But there was this one guy, very practical, cooperative, good with money, seemed to care for the poor. He dressed well. Judas was his name. 
He sounded good. Why bring that up? Well, because this is a, a text about the kind of people that Jesus is interested in calling. And this is a kind of text about the kind of people that Jesus is interested in using. Weak people, sinners, people with pasts, people who don't have it all together, people who occasionally respond poorly and sometimes even royally screw up. These are the kind of people that Jesus is interested in calling. And we're in a section of Mark now. We looked at the first of these five stories in Mark um, that deal with Jesus's rising frustrations with and clashes with the spiritual elite of the day, the scribes and uh, the Pharisees. And as we said last week, the last of these stories, because Mark arranges his material sometimes topically, uh, not necessarily chronologically. These stories may have happened at different points, but Mark's trying to get across the idea that there's this rising conflict with the spiritual authority in Israel. And it ends, you'll remember, in chapter 3, verse 6, where it says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus about how to destroy him. So Jesus was exposing the wrong thinking of the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus was exposing their wrong interpretation of God's plan. And like many of us, instead of responding with humility and meekness and receiving instruction from the Lord, they tightened up, uh, dug in, and got even more defensive and angry even to the point of murder. And so we see Jesus today calling someone whom they never would have called and eating with people with whom they never would have eaten, and it's beginning to drive them crazy. And you have to remember, and it really is still the same today, but maybe even a little more so back then, that societal status was really measured and judged according to who you ate with. We still do that today. Uh, there's something about sharing food, sharing a plate, sharing uh, a dish with people. That is sharing yourself. Uh, and so often there are people that we may work with. There are people that we may go to church with that we would never consider eating with. Uh, and in that day, social standing was measured uh, by this. And so often houses were open. There wasn't air conditioning. You could see who was eating with whom, and you could make judgments and pronouncements, and people kind of went in and out of parties as long as they were accepted there. And it would have been extremely controversial uh, to see Jesus eating with the likes of whom he ate with. This is a good text. I didn't plan it to happen on a day when we're having a church potluck. Um, but church potlucks aren't when we eat together. Church potlucks are when we share food together. Uh, and even here, it's a measure of our unity and our oneness. And what this text is telling us, and sometimes these points from the Scripture are so simple and you've heard them so much that you just let them wash on by. But don't let this one wash by. Jesus eats with sinful people because he wants to change them and call them and relate to them. And the Pharisees would not have any of this. As a matter of fact, in the New Living Translation, they, they phrase the question this way that the Pharisees ask in verse 16. Not why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners. The New Living Translation gets at it when it says, why does Jesus eat with such scum? And so this morning what I want to do in a few minutes is look at the difference 
between the way Jesus saw sinners and the way that Jesus saw the kingdom and the way the Pharisees saw sinners and the way the Pharisees saw the kingdom. So let's look first at this first point, Jesus versus the Pharisees at the potential of sinners. Now that's an interesting way to phrase it, at the potential of sinners. But that's the way I want us to phrase it. The Pharisees, when they looked at life, when they looked at people, they were immediately putting people into classes. They were class thinkers. And they were happy that they had the right to draw the lines. Isn't it wonderful to have societal power, to have social capital, because you're the one who can draw the lines. You're the one who can put people in circles and out of circles. And the way that they put people in circles and out of circles all had to do with their own strengths and with none of their own weaknesses. Boy, isn't it nice that in our minds we have the ability and the right, we think, to draw the line between the good guys and the bad guys. And in our minds, we make judgments about what kind of people are worthy of our time and what kind of people are not worthy of our time. And indeed, wisdom would say there are some people who eventually show themselves not to be worthy of your time, right? People who are hard-headed and people who are constantly full of drama and uh, just long-term. Yeah, eventually we, we have to separate ourselves from people. But so many of us make those judgments on a second, and we never make them based usually on the actions uh, and the hearts of people because we can't see that. We make those judgments right on what we visually line people up with. And the Pharisees did it according to their own standards, which was who kept the oral tradition about the law and who didn't. And if you kept the oral tradition about the law, uh, then you were a good guy. And if you didn't, you were a bad guy. If you washed your hands the right way before you ate food, and if you did these certain things the right way, down to the littlest little number, then you were worthy of uh, acceptance into their group. But if not, you were in this group of sinners. And they have to understand that many commentators, when it says the word sinners, who are, who are these sinners that he's talking about? These may not have even really been bad people. It's just that they didn't keep to the Pharisaical traditions. In the Old Testament, they were called people of the land. That is, the, the, just the normal, everyday people. The Pharisees saw them as sinners. And so they didn't approach them, and they questioned anyone who did. Jesus, on the other hand, and this is the greatest news I can give you this morning... Jesus doesn't approach people that way. There are sinful, awful people in this world. We are them, aren't we? I mean, there's really only two classes. And this is what should bring us together as a church. This is what really makes us a family, is that there really is only two classes. God and everybody else. Right? We, there's, that's the only distinction that matters. There's all kinds of distinctions that we can make. But when it comes to the kind of people that we're going to fellowship with, it's God and everybody else, and we're just a part of everybody else. Uh, we're sinful, wicked people uh, in our own ways. None of us would stand up to the bar of God's judgment on our own. And praise the Lord, when Jesus came, Jesus wasn't above eating with sinners. Think about what this means. This means that Jesus came to people who had no social capital, and he ate with them. And he shared food with them and he shared conversation with them. In other words, because of Jesus, we know that God's heart is for people. He's not automatically lumping them into classes. We can't do that, can we? 
Because every human being is a story, right? They're not a widget that you fit into certain sort of things. There's a story. There's a narrative arc. There are things that shape people's lives. There are mistakes that they've made that shape their identity. And Jesus just took everybody person by person and dealt with them as they were. He wasn't afraid to hang out with sinners because, and this may sound controversial, Jesus saw the potential in them. Now, I read this this week in a commentary that I really trust by a man that I really trust. And when I read it, it rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe that's my own problem. But here's what he says. God sees not only the sin in us, but also the potential for good in each of us. I read that. I was like, that sounds too much like an NBC, the more you know kind of thing. You know what I mean? And we have a lot of people... um, you know, who say dumb things like you can do anything you want. Can I, that's dumb. You can't do anything you want. We're made miserable by thinking we should do anything we want. What we should be concerned with is, is you can do what you should, right? You can do what God has called you to do, but thinking you can do anything you want, you end up wanting a life like a YouTuber or like somebody on TV That can make us miserable. And so this idea of Jesus saw the potential in people, I don't want us to mishear that as if all of us have this basic goodness that just needs to be called out. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that's not the case. In my family right now, my wife uh, does morning time with my children, and occasionally I'm ready enough or they do it early enough that it kind of coincides that I can be in there when they do that uh, family morning time. And, And they're reading through the book of Romans right now. In Romans, Paul makes it clear, the first three chapters of Romans are all about this fact, that every single one of us stands guilty and condemned before God, that all of us are sinners, all of us are wicked. So when we talk about seeing the potential for good, I'm not saying there's some good inside of you that can be called out. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus saw what he could do with people. He saw what he could do with people. And that's some of the greatest news in the world that when Jesus just meets you, yes, he sees your sin. Yes, he knows your sin. But he also sees what he can do with you. And he can do real good with you. Jesus gifts his church and he gifts his people so that you can do a ministry that's unique to you and will reach people in a particular way because Jesus is doing it through you. And it seems to me to be the greatest news in the world that when Christ encountered these sinners, he was looking more at what he could do with them than he was angered or put off by what they had done. Jesus knew that sin had to be dealt with. But it's just amazing that numerous times in the history of the church, some of the greatest leaders have been converted from some of the worst lives. The greatest theologian in the history of the church, and I'm not chronologically snobberous. I'm not talking about the, the, the greatest guy in the last 15 years. The greatest theologian in the history of the church is St. Augustine. Don't argue with me. All right? He got some stuff wrong, but just in terms of effect, he got a lot right. And Augustine lived a terrible life. Terrible life. Uh, and, and before he became a believer, one of the most compelling things I ever read was a philosophical discussion that, Uh, Augustine had uh, with one of his illegitimate children after he was saved. He wanted to see all of his people born again. The Lord, when you meet him, 
the Lord may be thinking more in terms of what he can do with you than he is just disgusted at your sin, which is why you can approach the Lord, which is why when Jesus came, he was meeting with people. When you look at people, what do you see? Do you see a class? Do you see, do you try and put them in some category? Uh, or when you pe meet people, do you think this is someone, no matter where they are right now, that the Lord could do a lot with if they would just repent and turn to him. This is someone who's going to possibly shine like the stars in the sky one day if they follow Christ. The potential for good is there in everyone because there's no one outside of the reach of God's grace, not because of their own goodness. And so this helps us to think of a question. Do you think in terms of class? You should think in terms of class. It's just there's two. God and everybody else. God and everybody else. When the Pharisees saw people, they lumped them into groups. When Jesus saw people, he saw what God could do with them. What do you see? What do you see with yourself? Secondly, Jesus and the Pharisees in this text disagreed over the nature of the kingdom. <clears throat> the nature of the kingdom. What is, the, what is God's kingdom like? Well, for Jesus and the Pharisees, they were two different answers. For the Pharisees, the nature of the kingdom was separation. The nature of the kingdom is separation. For Jesus, the nature of the kingdom is transformation. And there's all the difference in the world between those two things. The word for Pharisee, you see it there. They met the scribes of the Pharisees. That word Pharisee is from a Hebrew word, which means something like the separatists. All right, these are the people who have the bunker mindset. Circle the wagons. The world out there is dark and dirty, and we're not going to be touched by that. We don't want to be around those people. We don't want to be infected by those people. We don't want to be influenced by those people. The way that the kingdom works is God saves his small few, right? Uh, and then they just kind of hunker themselves down, and the rest of everybody else can go to hell. That was a Pharisee. Because they were about separation, they became obsessed with external things, neglecting the issues that mattered most to God. Jesus never knocked the Pharisees for the things that they did. He always knocked the Pharisees for the things that they didn't do. They would argue about how much of their spice rack they should like tithe. And Jesus said, you're not even thinking about mercy and justice. You're not thinking of the weightier matters of the law. And at their banquets, the Pharisees maintained an exclusive fellowship so they did not get any ritual impurity from anybody else. They thought of themselves as righteous. They never thought of themselves as sinners. I'm a huge fan of the show The Office. Do you know The Office? In the third season, Michael is, Michael is the, the dim-witted but well-intended manager of this paper company, okay, at their Scranton, Pennsylvania branch. And at one point, he's trying to interview for a job higher up the chain, and he's interviewing uh, in New York City, and he gives us a wonderful picture of human pride. The interviewer says, let me ask you a question right off the bat. What do you think are your greatest strengths as a manager? And Michael says, well, I, I won't tell you what my greatest, why don't I tell you what my greatest weaknesses are? Uh, I work too hard, I care too much, and sometimes I can be too invested in my job. And the interviewer goes, okay, so what are your strengths? Michael says, well, my weaknesses actually are my strengths, right? We do that in our own minds. We can justify ourselves in anything. And the Pharisees were 
tremendous at that. Separation, separation, arrogance, sin, judging. This was the nature of them. And when they ran into the kind of people that Jesus ran into, it was crazy. So Levi, let's talk about Levi. Anybody know who Levi is? Matthew, it says Levi, the son of Alphaeus. There's another uh, one of the disciples named James, the son of Alphaeus. So this could be the third set of brothers, right? There's James and John, uh, Peter and Andrew, and maybe there was Matthew and James, both the son of Alphaeus. Matthew was nicknamed Levi. Now, what they know about the first century is most people nicknamed Levi were nicknamed that because they were Levites. Now, what is a Levite supposed to be? A priest, a holy person set apart. Instead of being a priest, what was Matthew? A tax collector, which meant that he was hated. They have records of the kind of tax places that occurred right where Jesus was at this point, and they taxed the fish intake, okay? And so <clears throat> Capernaum was right on the edge of two of the Herodians' like, governorships. So two bad guys were over these areas. You passed from one to the other. You got taxed as you went from one to the other. And Matthew would have been one of these tax collectors. He probably would have been collecting taxes on fish since it was near a lake, which would have meant that Peter and Andrew, James and John and Jesus would have known this guy. Uh, these guys were absolutely hated because even though they were Israelites, they were in the cahoots with the government collecting taxes. None of us likes a tax collector, do we? But even more so when it's for a government that you thought had no right to be. You may think that about the American government at this point. But a government that has no right to tax you has no right to your land, and they're there taxing you. And one of your own people, who should be a Levite, is collecting taxes. They would have hated this guy. As a matter of fact, tax collectors in those days weren't allowed to testify in court. And that oral tradition the Pharisees followed said that you could even lie to these guys to protect your property. You can't do that, by the way. Right? You can't do that. They were dishonest. The way they made money was by charging more than what uh, the government said they had to charge. To be a tax collector was something that you purchased. You bought the right to do it. Who's um, <clears throat> the most famous tax collector in the Bible? Short guy. Zacchaeus, all right? And he had so much money that he said he could repay everyone he had defrauded up to four times. These guys were absolutely hated. And what's amazing is not only does Jesus call this guy, Jesus eats at his house. Now let me tell you about what this was like from Matthew's perspective. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, written by this guy, one of the Gospel writers, Matthew tells his own conversion. And what's amazing is he tells it in a line of stories about miracles. So this miracle happens, this miracle happens in Matthew, this miracle happens, it's in chapter 9, Jesus calls Matthew, then there's this miracle, this miracle, this miracle. Why did Matthew put his calling by Jesus in a list of miracles? Because that's exactly what he thought it was. He, he took this blind guy and he made him see. He took this lame guy and he made him walk. He took this person and he healed him. And one day he walked by my tax booth and he said, hey, you, come follow me. And even though I was rejected and I was a wicked person and I was an outcast, societally speaking, the only people who liked me were the people who took money from me. This guy came along and he called me and in a moment he changed my heart and he made me a despised man. He made me a gospel writer. 
The kingdom is not about separation. The kingdom is about transformation. And this is the defining characteristic of Jesus. Sharing table fellowship with those whom the rest of society has rejected. And I've said this before and I can't say it enough. Eating with people was Jesus' evangelism plan. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Jesus ate with sinners. And I'll go so far as to say this. I think in our day and age, rather than standing on a street corner yelling the gospel at people, which has its place and has fruit, in a time like ours where we have deaths of despair, people committing suicide or killing themselves on opioids, in a time where community is completely broken down, one of the best ways you can share the gospel with people is go, hey, do you want to go to Subway for lunch today? You want some of my chips? Because people know that food connection, that food life connection and developing relationships. I read a book called A Meal with Jesus written by a pastor in London. And he had a guy who was a Muslim who was a friend of his for a while. And he shared the gospel with this guy and nothing seemed to change him. And then one day this guy got converted and became a believer. And the Muslim friend who is now a Christian of this pastor, the pastor's like, dude, I was working on you for a long time. What happened? And the guy said, well, you brought me over to your house one night for chili, and I just saw the way that you interacted with your kids. He said, if that's what Jesus does, then I guess I'll go with him. Jesus knew this was the case. He was sharing his life with people, and he was doing things societally that brought walls down. And we need to hear this. Do you know why? Because we're more separate from people than we've ever been and because of that, what's happening in our minds is we're building that sort of separatist mindset, right? So and I, we hate gay people and Democrats. I'm not saying we do. You understand what I'm saying? I don't. And we probably don't really know one of either well. You follow me? It's easy to lob bombs on Twitter and Facebook. It's hard to look somebody in the eye. And what's happening is the further we get set, you know, the Facebook and Twitter connect people. They don't connect nothing, do they? They don't. And I'm not, I'm, I like Twitter. Twitter is great for pictures that make me laugh because that's why the internet exists, right? And Facebook is great for keeping up with friends that uh, I, I haven't seen in a long time and seeing how their kids grow up. And it is good that you do connect with some people in good ways. But you also get further and further away from people if that's your way of connecting, Right? You should know, you should know and occasionally sit down and eat with someone who's different than you. And I'm not that great at it either. But what this does is this breaks down the walls that our society and that we're going along with creates. Eating with people. This is what Jesus came to do because he knew this was the way that society was going to be transformed. And so what Jesus did is he went to Levi's house for a meal and Jesus took over the meal. They were eating around him. They were sitting around him. And Jesus tells us why he did it. Look at verse 17. Tax collector said, what is he doing eating with this scum? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's what you call a backhanded slap verbally by the Lord. Were the Pharisees righteous? And they were murderous, right? 
They were the worst kind of sinners. They were religious sinners, right? Better to be a sinner on a bar stool than be a sinner in a church pew, right? Because the one sits under the word of God and hardens his or her heart after it time and time and time again. Now, better to be a believer, right? But Jesus ate with sinners because he came to call sinners. And so I think here this is more than just uh, some small thing. This is a mindset shift that we need to have together as a church. That we're not about separation. We separate from sin, but we don't separate from sinners, do we? We're not made clean by our degree of separation from people. We're made clean because we trust in Christ. And because we trust in Christ and have received his righteousness, we can go out into a sinful world without worry of somehow being infected. The kingdom, Jesus believes, is stronger than the kingdom of darkness. Light is stronger than darkness, isn't it? So when the power goes out, we have a flashlight. And as soon as you turn that flashlight on, no matter how small the beam, if you're in a dark room, what is your eye drawn to? The light. There's no such thing as a flash dark, is there? There's not something you flip on and it sucks the light out of the room. Now, BMW has this new paint that apparently is so black it kind of does that. But we'll leave that to the side for the time being. I watch too much automotive stuff. Anyway, flash dark, it's not like darkness overcomes light. It's not like the kingdom is something that we need to coddle and protect lest it loses its way in the world. That's not the way Jesus thought about anything. Jesus knew that the kingdom of God was going to be based on resurrection power, that the Holy Spirit was stronger than any other spirit in the world. And so God's people, while being separate from sin, never need to worry about some kind of infection to be separate from people. We need to be out in the world. We need to be rubbing shoulders. We need to be listening to people. We don't need to ask them what they do for a living. We need to ask them who they are. And we need to listen. And then we need to speak. And we need to get to know them. Because they can seem really grumpy and mean and nasty. And then you hear what's going on in their life and you have mercy. And Jesus had mercy. So are you a separationist or a transformationist? Do you look at sinners and see people who need to be pushed away? Or do you look at sinners and go, you know, Jesus could make something out of that guy. In both cases, it's the gospel and the kingdom of God that is stronger. And that's what Jesus believed. And that's what motivated him to go out into the world. And so Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous. I've called come to call sinners. This morning, if you're a sinner, Jesus has come to call you. And no matter what you think of yourself in spite of your sin and in light of your sin, Jesus can make you something great if you will but trust him and follow him. Believers must not build walls of separation from the world. We need to carry the message of grace and transformation into the world. Doctors are no good for the sick if they hide in clinics behind locked doors, right? And the fact that we're all in the same class is something that we celebrate together in the Lord's Supper. Because what the Lord's Supper says is that our food, what we need, is not our own righteousness, but we need the righteousness that comes through the torn body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The great news of the gospel is you don't have to die for your sins. You have offended God's holiness. You are a sinner 
but God has come in Jesus to offer forgiveness and reconciliation to you. And what we do when we take the Lord's Supper is we say a few things that are very important. We say that my hope and my food and what I live on is the crushed body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus because that is my righteousness. And the other crucial thing we say is this, and please, this was so much more important in the early church than it seems to be in our day because what we think this is is some kind of thing where I'm saying to God what I believe and I'm saying what I eat and I'm saying what I hope in and we forget that this is called communion, which means every time we eat this, we eat this how? Together. And we're saying together, we're all in the same class. We all need the same thing. We all live by the same thing. We all share the same food. You're reaching into a plate with somebody next to you who's admitting they're a sinner. And that makes them a brother and a sister. It doesn't make them another class. It makes them your own. And because it's saying so many important things, the Lord's Supper is not something to be taken lightly. And so this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus, you're not eating of this. You're not saying this is my food. Other things are your food. Attainment is your food. Uh, status, possessions are your food. And the thing is, all of those things are going to leave you hungry. It's only Jesus who's able to say, if you come and believe in me, you will never, ever thirst again. You will never be hungry again. But this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus, we just ask that you let this stuff pass you by. In the same token, Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, that if you are caught in unrepentant sin, that you also need to let this pass because this is not a ritual. This is a statement of faith. And if your life right now uh, is calling into question your commitment to Christ, then you don't need to cheapen this act uh, with a life that already cheapens grace. So we ask that you take this time to repent of your sin, to turn and to get help. And this is a church that will help. But for all of us sinners who are ever feebly are uh, clinging to Christ, I invite you to j join us in partaking of this uh, as our deacons come forward.